are about to hear contains highly offensive and indecent material. This is the Adam Sank Show. If it's in my hand, I'm going to suck it. Powered by DNR Studios. And now... The one, the only, Adam Sank! Bottom. Willkommen to the Adam Sank Show. We are not live, but... And it's a big butt. This is a brand new episode of sorts. If you're listening at 11 a.m. Eastern on Saturday, May 8th, 2021 at dnrstudios.com, the only place to hear this podcast throughout the week that it first airs. If you listen anywhere else, leave us your ratings and reviews on the audio platform you use. Email me at adam at adamsank.com. Please like and follow the Adam Sank Show Facebook page. Download my comedy albums. Get your official ass merch, T-shirts, tank tops, even food for your pet lizard. <laughs> the link to all that merch is adamsank.com. And remember, you can now call the ass hotline anytime you want, even when we're not on the air, and leave us a voicemail. The number for that is 804-TALK-ASS. That's 804-825-5277. Today is a brand new special. It is the Best of Ass Fan Favorites. I will explain what that means in a moment, but first I need to welcome back everyone's favorite piglet, the unshowered and very stinky Ryan Frostig. Hello. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. You know, you're not the only one who's stinky. I'm all pitted out today. It's yes. warm in here. It's very warm in this studio, thing, I think. even with the uh, window open. But uh, fortunately, next week, we will be in a brand new studio. We keep saying that for the last three weeks, but... Can you? We're, Can I? Because we're doing three Can episodes at once. It's really all the same day. It's the, it's the magic it's the of radio. Ending. Day of Pod. Never ending. Yes, the reason why, uh, well, there's a few reasons we're doing a special. I am away this week. I am in an undisclosed location, <laughs> far, far away. She's mm. getting work done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having something raised and <laughs> something, something lowered. lowered. Wait, what is that from? It's from Will and Grace. Oh, that's yeah. right. It's Miss Coco Peru says it. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's one of my Legend. favorite lines ever. Um, but okay, so you're probably asking, like, why another Best of Ass so soon? We just did one like a month ago. Ooh, I. Here's the deal. We do one Best of Ass every quarter, which means that we do 48 new episodes a year, which is a lot, frankly, considering that we all have jobs. How? Um, And then at the end of the quarter, we do a Best of. Well, because I'm going away, we have to do the Best of earlier than usual, but that means there will not be a Best of at the end of the quarter. There will just be continuous Mm. new episodes Mm. right up through the end of, what, September? All right. So that's why we're doing it so soon. Now, how are we defining fan favorites? Uh, I'm doing it actually by download. I have often read you guys the list of the top 10 most downloaded episodes of The Ass. It's fairly static. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Most of them are older episodes. Um, We're not going to be doing highlights from all 10 Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. For instance, Rocco Steele is number two now of all time, but he was just on a few months ago. Yeah. So if you guys want to go back and listen to the Rocco Steele episode, I strongly recommend it. It's a great episode, but it's too soon to rerun that. So we're not going to rerun him here. There was another one uh, where it was the director of a documentary called Gay Chorus Deep South. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's why the episode is popular. The name of the episode is Aaron Shock's Dick Picks Leak. Mm-hmm. Because we did a story about that, and mm-hmm. I think that's why it's one of the most downloaded episodes. Yeah. Uh, no disrespect to the director of Gay Chorus Deep South. He was a lovely man, sure, but sure, I sure. just don't uh, think he was the reason people tuned in. One of, the sh- one of the top ten is the best of ass. So we can't do a best of within a best of. Sometimes the best of asses they're great. are really good. But it would be crazy to play a clip from a clip show. 
And finally, one of them features Freddie Alanis, the kid who got a 10-inch dick oh my, stuck iconic. in his windpipe. Freddie and I no longer speak to each other. <gasps> what? <laughs> we got into a little fight on Twitter. <gasps> really? I didn't tell you about this. This, this was is months ago. This is brand new information. We followed each other, and uh, he tweeted something about, like, these old gays with their open relationships, you know, LMAO, if if my man ever wanted to have sex with someone else, I'd kick him to the curb. Oh, my God. And I responded in a way that I do not feel was disrespectful. And I just said, you know, it's easy when you're young to feel that way. I said, once you get older, you, you realize that almost all long-term gay relationships have some level of openness. Sure. And it's not unusual you yeah. know, for gay men who've been together for many years to have some kind of arrangement. I basically, that's all I said. Mm. And he was like so nasty and vicious. Like clearly I hit a nerve Ooh. and he was just like, fuck you. You know, don't fucking tell me, don't talk, tell me, well, uh, preach oh, wow. to me. You don't know. Da, da, da. Just because Damn. you're a slut doesn't mean <gasps> that everyone like really nasty. Oof. And I don't remember if I blocked him or he blocked me, but in short, I will not be rerunning his episode. <laughs> And if I had any self-respect, I would delete his episode. But it gets a lot of hits. So. <laughs> so there you go. Go back and listen to it if you want to. I'm not giving him any more attention. Freddie, if you're listening, you're not. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Shut up, cunt! Exactly. Um, so that leaves six that we will be featuring in this special. And we will be doing them in reverse order. So in other words, we will end with the most popular, most downloaded guest of all time. Um, but in that top 10, we're going to start with Marty Thomas. Okay, Marty. Who, whom we love and love. who has not been on the show in a very long time. Uh, this was his appearance on episode 65 back on September, uh, September 29th of 2018. A little bit of a setup. We had been talking about Candace Cameron Bure mm. from Full House. Mm. Mm-hmm. She had been in the news because, you know, she's this homophobic, born-again Christian shithead. And she had posed for a picture wearing a shirt that said, not today, Satan, Mm -hmm. to which Mm -hmm. Bianca Bianca Del Rio did not respond well. Right. She was like, listen, you homophobic bitch, don't wear my shirt. Yeah. Um, And as it turned out, Marty has a personal connection to Candace. So we we talked to him about that during the interview. And he also just talked about his life as a child star. You know, he was on Broadway when he was 10 years old. Yeah. And his work on, his other work on Broadway over the years, he's just frank and down to earth and yeah. so fun and That's talented great. so uh without further ado here are some highlights from that episode with marty thomas marty you've been patiently waiting over on the sofa <laughs> listening to our filthy conversation i love your filthy conversation i was dying that i couldn't get involved thank you we should have just had you involved <laughs> i just i never know i don't want to make you uncomfortable maybe you don't want to comment on candace cameron burr i don't um her mother was my first agent what really? i know and it was uh, one of those like life moments of like I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm living. The real. Cameron's mom are my agent, and I was like borderline devastated when I first read what a horrible human being she is. <laughs> and Kirk Cameron is even worse. Well, Kirk's I, a lunatic. I have a really distinct memory of like one of my earliest um, self hatred spirals were because of their mother, of her telling my mother in front of me how they needed to get control of me and butch me up or i would wow. never work so the mom was like that too fully oh yeah that's so gross it's I, gross 
But, like, I was a child actor in the 80s, so I have a lot of memories of people telling my mother that I was destined for failure and homelessness. Well, clearly they were wrong. Fuck them. I want to – I was thinking about you, and I was thinking about – when I was 11, I was doing musical theater, too. But I was doing it, like, in my hometown of Summit, New Jersey for, you know, several dozen people. (laughs) You were doing it on Broadway. Well – What do you remember from that experience? You know, it's it's an odd um, it's an odd thing to think about because I was a child actor, but a lot of it was um, a, a lot of my motivation was based on getting out of my hometown. I felt very which was where Trenton, Missouri. Oh wow! Very tiny farm community where I didn't feel safe, and I don't I I don't really understand how I knew I was unsafe, um, and it's not like I had. Uh, some horrifying childhood or anything like my parents were really good to me and lived on a farm in the middle of nowhere. But at the same time, I knew I needed to get out of that town and, uh, started finding opportunities to get out of town if I would sing. And I, I figured out quickly at like six, seven years old that That you were going to sing your way out of Missouri. It was just what got me attention and what got me, Anytime I would find an opportunity to get out of town, if there was like a tiny bit of money, my mom was just as excited to get out of town, so she would go with me. And uh, so I figured out early on that that was an easy way to manipulate the scenario. Yeah. Uh, so I wrote letters in crayon. I sent cassette tapes that I made on my like you know old school, my first Casio. Mm-hmm. And my mom got super on board and was working just as hard to find opportunities. And See, you got to have a good stage mother. Absolutely. My mother wanted nothing to do with me. My mom wanted to be a stage mom, but it's it's a full-time job. It's a full-time job. Well, my, I was the last of four kids, mm. and I my mom wanted out. Yeah. Like, you know, my dad is awesome as hell, and he really was super supportive, as supportive as a Republican farmer can be of yeah. his ultra-gay son. Um, and you know, my sisters are, there's 13 years between us. Wow. So it was like, my dad was focused on my brother and my mom was focused on me kind of. So she was super jazzed to get out of town and come to New York. So how do you get from Missouri to the cast of the secret garden? Um, I was doing a show. I was doing shows at a giant regional theater in Kansas city called starlight theater. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar? I've heard of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a huge, huge huge theater. And they had, um, it was a lot stronger in the eighties and nineties than it is now, but they have like such an amazing public outreach program Mm -hmm. that regional theaters are very smart when they reach out to actors to be in their shows because it brings in an immediate built in audience. Yeah. So every year they do a show like Annie or Camelot or something where they can have a children's chorus. So uh, every summer I would go and audition for this children's chorus. And for me, it was a giant deal because I learned so much and met some incredible people and incredible actors. And um, the young girl who was playing Annie in the summer of 88 Mm -hmm. uh, became my really close friend. She was really cool. And she had already done a few Broadway musicals and lived in Kansas City proper, which was a couple hours from my dad's farm. So it was like metropolis. Right. And uh, as you know, in the 80s, like we didn't have Google and we couldn't research where Kansas City seemed like the fanciest place on earth. It was right. That was the city. It was it. Yeah. It was like, you know, the merry old land. So um, she had a New York agent and I had no idea what that meant, but I wanted in. And she gave me an address and we wrote letters and sent cassettes. And I got a call from this agent asking my dad to bring me to New York to audition for these three shows. And my dad was like, huh. <laughs> what, what were, what were the other two shows? Uh, Les Mis, Will Rogers, and Secret Garden. Wow. 
Yeah. That is amazing. Were, it was like did you feel like season. you had won the lottery? I mean, I would have been freaking out. I, I wish that it, it were just it was it was definitely a year where I was um, feeling my oats and yeah. I was fine. You were like, I got this. I had it. I knew I booked it. I just knew I was going to book it. Um, I just was having a, a, a year. You know, like you're a performer, Adam. Like Ish. you have those years where you and I met at your comedy show. So you're you're a performer. <laughs> uh, you have those years of green light go, and you have definitely years of red light stop. Mm-hmm. And it was a green light go year. Everything I tried was working out. So I really didn't have any reason to think I wouldn't book it. Right. You know, it's so great when you're young and you don't have any reason to doubt yourself yet. Just yeah. for that brief moment. And like, you know, that day my dad had taken me, I was told to go to this vocal coach. My agent told me his name is Robert Marks. I mean, he's worked with everybody. And my dad walked me to the door and gave me a hundred dollar bill, which might as well have been 10 million. Right. Oh, yeah. And in my head, it clicked. Holy cow. My dad has all the faith in the world in me. This is mine. This agent said I had to have this voice lesson, so my dad's like, take my $100. And for my dad, $100 is mint. So after that voice lesson, I went to this audition one after another in these like weird, I remember them being ratty old warehouses, but they were probably the casting offices I go to today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in my head, some parts of that time in my life are vivid AF, and some of them feel like maybe they were a made-for-TV movie I saw at one point. So how long were you in The Secret Garden? Just under a year. And it, was it just magical? Uh, at times. Like, it, it, it wasn't the farm. And I was being exposed to, like, I was, I mean, let's be honest. If I, I was seeing black people for the first time. And I was meeting gay people for the first time. Thank God. To my knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I was just being exposed to things. I would say stupid farm bullshit. And some cultured New York kid would be like, what'd you just say? Right. And school me and get my brain thinking. And uh, I just had a lot of uh, aha moments that year. But it was a huge year. Like, I, at the time, child labor laws weren't what they are today. So I did eight shows a week and went to school full time and auditioned and did appearances and uh, tried to have a life. And, you know, it was 11. Yeah, I, I saw the Annie documentary where they had a lot of the Annies together to talk about it. And Sarah Jessica Parker was saying how, you know, in those days, those kids were just wildly unsupervised they would go they would do a show and then they'd all go to studio 54 and hang out and they were kids mm, it wasn't quite like that you <laughs> for me it, it was a while after that like annie kind of broke the mold because a lot of those kids got in a lot of trouble <laughs> but uh you know we broke the mold for a lot of people like a lot of child labor laws changed after us because <laughs> yeah. at the time it was like you know britney spears and laura bell bundy and Lacey chabert and there were a lot of us on broadway at the moment or off broadway whatever um, and like, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there was the little girl who peed in the coffee pot. Name it. Is. I want to no, know. I can't. I can't. Was it Danielle Brisbois? <laughs> no, um, no, I still know this girl and I would never call her out because it is painful, but it happened. Uh, but those kinds of things that we did have, we had a wrangler, what they call a wrangler in theater. I guess they do it in TV too. I don't know. Yeah, but right. there's somebody on staff. Like, I work at the Lion King. I do wigs at the Lion King now. And we have wranglers that are always watching the kids. And the way that these wranglers watch the kids were is very much more hands-on yeah. than the way we did. So after Secret Garden, do you stay in New York or do you go back to Missouri? Well, I went back to Missouri because the, I lost my Secret Garden concert because my voice started dropping. Mm. Uh, Which is weird because today you sing 
basically in a female register. Well, I my my only theory about that is that my my parents were so supportive and they constantly were finding new opportunities for me to keep performing and keep motivated. And I feel like a lot of child actors lose motivation mm-hmm. when they lose um, confidence in themselves. And because my parents were really kind of rad about finding ways for me to keep motivated and keep singing and keep writing and working that um, I think I sang through my voice change. So I never had like the typical crack right. that guys have. Um, I just sort of dropped uh, register a tiny, a little bit. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really crazy, but like I listened to videos of myself when I'm, I was 12 and it was like octaves higher. It was boy soprano range, but I just didn't know what I was doing really. Right. So you go back to Missouri and was it like a huge letdown? Or are you like, oh, fuck, giant, I hate my life now. Giant letdown. Um, yeah, I thought I was going to be so excited and I thought I was going to be, I was ready for a break because I was so exhausted. Um, but I got back and realized why I wanted to leave. And my, we found, I went to Branson. Missouri. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of it? Sure. It's like, they call it the country music capital of the world, but it's like where country music legends go to die. And I did, uh, I did a lot of really great shows. I did the Johnny Cash show. I did the Glenn Campbell show, the Presley's Jubilee. The uh, I did a, a little band called the Young Branson Stars. And it's uh, kind of like a, a, a Nashville slash Broadway of the Midwest. It's like the theme park of Broadway. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's great. Yakov Shmirnov has his own theater there. Oh, my there. gosh. You know Yakov. Oh, sure. Yakov Shmirnov and Shoji Tabuchi, mm-hmm. the uh, Asian violinist with a dream. And uh, he, he's famous for having uh, multi-million dollar bathrooms in his theater. Mm. People legit go to his theater, not to see the show. To use the bathroom. Just to go to the bathroom. Sort of like so vinyl. I love a good bathroom. R. Oh, R.I.P. vinyl. Whoops. So, so you're in Branson. Yeah. And then at what point do you come back to New York? Uh, I was there for a few years. Um, came back to New York to finish my senior year of high school. Uh, just to spend a little, I, I think my mom and I started realizing that I was, um, my time with my dad was quickly dwindling, you know? In the sense that your relationship was... Uh, I just didn't know him because hmm. I hadn't spent much time with him in several years, in my formative years, mm-hmm. you know? Because between the age of like 10 and 16, I was not home right. ever. So um, I went home to finish my senior year, had a pretty cool year and it was kind of a nice little break i was singing a lot at home and in church but then i went to business school and uh, moved to new york best of us fan favorite oh marty i love (laughs) you okay um just to go back to the whole aaron shot thing did you know if you google aaron shot and dick pic the first thing to pop up is the Adam Singh show. Yes! Yes! That's exciting. I'm so happy to hear that. That is huge. Oh, JB, you've made my day. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I don't remember the story we were talking about his dick pic. I don't remember seeing his dick pic. I probably made fun of it for being so small. I don't know. No, it wasn't small. It was lovely. Really? Okay. So yeah. I don't remember. That's why I had to Google it. Um, wow. All right. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Um, the next episode we're going to highlight is when Frank DeCaro was on the show back on May 4th, 2019. This was episode 94. Hmm. And my co-host that day was Sean Peter Drillin. Ah, SPD. SPD was co-hosting. Frank DeCaro had just come out with his book, Drag, Combing Through the Big Wigs of Hollywood. Drag. I can't plug this book enough. It's really wonderful. It's a great coffee table book um, filled with great pictures. He, he, it's an encyclopedia of drag. 
And um, Frank's always a hilarious guest. So here are some highlights. How is the book tour going? Oh, it's fun. Well, you know you have to put it together your own book tour. But yeah. I have to say, that said, the enthusiasm for this drag book is huge. And, and I'm, I'm really living for it. And we're, this was the, really the test for me. We are doing signings at the two most difficult Barnes & Nobles in the country to get into. And, and you never have that. It's like you have to be a major celebrity. And as I tell people, not a major celebrity in your own apartment. You right. know, because it's like, I, like I don't me. know about you, but that's the way I feel. I'm a yeah. major celebrity in my apartment. Other than that, not so much. But uh, so we're doing Union Square in New York Pride Week here. Amazing. And we're doing Union Square, or excuse me, we're doing Barnes & Noble uh, in the Grove in L.A. during Pride Week, the first week of the month. So it's June 4th and June 26th. Uh, we're doing them on either coast. And I just started it. We did, uh, we were, I was at the Chicago Humanities Festival. I was at a theater in Wicker Park with three generations of drag queens uh, uh, performing and we I did a reading and then we did signing and then they performed it was divine well I think there's two reasons why it, the book is getting such a response first of all I think it came out at the perfect time you've really pays to be late on your deadline by a year yes, doesn't it you've, yeah. really, you've tapped into drag mania which is really like at its heightened frenzy I know. I mean, all over the world everyone is so interested suddenly in this art form that the gays have known about forever but I think RuPaul really brought it mainstream in a massive way over over the last 10 years. But also, the book is so good. Oh, thank you. It's really good. I, thank you. you. Frank sent me the galley, the digital galley, and I thought, you know, I knew it was going to be cute. Everything you do is, like, cute and kitschy. I didn't think it would be so definitive. As I was reading it, I kept thinking, he's going to leave out so-and-so. Like, he's going to leave out Charlie Brown from Atlanta, because why would he even know who Charlie Brown... There she is. She has her own page. Know. You know, Two-page spread, yeah. He, he's going to leave... Like, every time I thought of someone you might not have, they're in the book. How many How many queens are in this book? Oh, God, I don't even know. I mean, there's so many. I have to say, though, you, it does make... The only time I get mad if, is somebody posted... Where is so-and-so? And, like, what do you write back? Page 242 I wrote back. You know, it's like, don't – it's like, get it right. If you're going to complain right. that someone's not in it, make sure they're really not in it. It is so comprehensive, so. and it's also a beautiful book because you have these great uh, giant color photos of each of the queens yeah. that you're writing about. Rizzoli did a great job. And, and, the, and the photographers, many of them donated their work because Amazing. they have – because there's no money for that. You know, you put these things together on a shoestring. And then when they look this beautiful, you sit there and go, well, that worked. And it's you know? not just like a magazine with lots of drag queens in it. It's really about the history of drag. And you trace it from its origins to the present day. And um, I have to first ask you, because I know how you love your puns. Yes. So what were the alternate titles if you hadn't used Combing Through the Big Wigs of show business. It was always that, except it was going to be called Big Wigs Coming Through the History of Drag in Show Business. But Big Wigs was always going to be the, in there somewhere. Why'd you but change it? They did. They said it, They said because of search engines, everything's based. I hate to say it, Every book on drag. You know what every book on drag is called? Drag. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you look it up, but drag. Every book is called drag. But no, I think they, they really are like, well, search engines will find it better if it's called drag, colon, coming through the big wigs of show business, rather than big wigs. And then drag is in the subtitle. I was sure so, you had yeah. like fifty different puns that you had. No, you would out. think I would. Te just teasing. No, I don't know what it would be, but uh, but yeah, there are uh, uh, there are. I do love a good pun. I can't help it. But it's 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 a serious book, even though it's light. It is serious. But you know, I did a radio show a couple of years ago, and someone not my own, and someone 
someone said to me, they were doing the lightning round at the end of the interview, and the, this or this, you know, and they said, funny or smart? And I said, smart, and it brought it to the end of the discussion. It, they just looked at me like, really? And I was like, yeah, it's like smart. That's my favorite thing. Funny is good, but it comes, but it's like. Well, you have to be smart to be funny. No, you don't. There are a lot of stupid people who are funny. And, but I like book smart, too, I have to tell you. You like nerds. I like a good, if, when my husband, my husband's best chances for getting laid are when he proofreads something. And he goes, oh, wait, they just said it's off the coast of Spain. It's off the coast of Portugal. And then I just get a boner. You drop to your I, knees. Oh, my God. I want to service him right there. That's my kind of I'm on. kind of the same. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, but I think this book, like for someone like Ryan Frostig, who's really a, a drag um, obsessionado, I think he he will love this book because oh, I hope so. it's just um, it's like as I said it's so comprehensive. I want to ask you about some of the people you included and my favorite section um, because one of them has been on our show so many times and is a friend of mine was your section on the three Charleses of, yes. of drag. Who were the three Charleses? Charles Ludlam, Charles Pierce, and Charles Bush. And I just always thought it was funny. It's like, why do you have to? If you're named Charles, you should be a drag queen. That's basically what we're learning. Prince yeah. Charles, kind of a drag queen. But uh, no, I, the three of them are really, I mean, they weren't just like drag performers. They were landmark drag performers. I actually I mean, wrote my, my thesis on Charles Ludlum um, in college. And it, it was, I was kind of, I, as soon as I opened the, the galleys for the book, the first thing I did was like control F and wanted to read the section on Ludlum. Did I do all right? Yeah. No, oh, it good. Was, Thank it was you. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you. I, well, I, I read was, a lot of, see, I'd never seen him perform i'd seen tr everything charles bush has done and i'd seen charles pierce perform live and watched him uh, on lots of video yeah obviously. i read about the plays in the context of yeah. drag discourse and drag theory now oh when i was God. a young gay when i was sean's age i knew who pierce and bush were i didn't know ludlum i, I didn't much know much later in later, life yeah and part of it is he had a, a short career because he died way too young oh yeah the other two i mean charles bush thank god is still with us uh, in his 60s, and, and Charles Pierce lived to be, what, 70-something? He was something? pretty good. Yeah, he, he got, had a good long life. And I have to say, the one, one of the things that I learned in putting this book together, it's a hard life, and a lot of people die young. And not just, oh, they got AIDS and died. It's like, it could be murder, it could be suicide, it could, you know, I mean, Marsha P. ended up in the, in the river. It could be AIDS got them. It could be a mysterious death like Dean and, Johnson. And that, unfortunately, it's know. still the case. It's a tough if road. You're, to, if, if you're on the fringe... As a performer, or as a as a human being, or as a human being, you might not have health insurance. You might be with sketchy people. You homeless. might not have enough money. You might right. be homeless, and it breaks my heart because these people are so freaking talented. So and but that was one of the things that I noticed because you'd be doing things and you'd be like, wait a minute, this one's thirty eight, this one's forty two, this one's right. you know twenty nine, whatever. And it was, and I thought a lot of it would be AIDS related, but it was you know there was that period, yes. But it wasn't certainly wasn't everybody. So let's first talk about Charles Pierce and oh, I loved him. what his act was and what his legacy is. He, Charles Pierce uh, was my favorite. He was a female impersonator, and they the, the best line about him was that basically he was like the performance equivalent of a Hirschfeld cartoon. Like he was a caricature, but he would do these things. But he would do his he would his his absolute brilliant most brilliant thing was he would do. Betty Davis talking to Tallulah Bankhead, and he would just shift his wig and turn and do both sides of the conversation. And, and so he was genius. But if you watch his videos, and thank heaven there's a lot on YouTube. There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a, a full-length performance of his. Um, I, he calls it – he talks about, like, obscure but, – but, I mean, even for me, there were kind of obscure Betty Davis movies. But he calls this one character um, – 
a 12 o'clock girl in a 5 o'clock town. No, a 12 o'clock girl in a 9 o'clock town with 5 o'clock shadow waiting for – you know, and he does this – It's everything is this wordplay, and he's hilarious. And um, But when he started, he couldn't no, dress he couldn't in dress, women's clothing. He had to, like, put a hat on and, and hold a cigarette holder. Or a cardigan. You know, yeah, there'd yeah. be the, just a suggestion of femininity because otherwise you could get arrested. Be arrested. Yeah, it's crazy. It's that, unbelievable. It and that was at the beginning of his career. By the end, he would be out in full drag. Yeah, he was I, playing at you know the, the the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion at the end you know things like that in L A and huge. I, I knew him as a as a younger person from the movie Torch Song trilogy where he plays uh, Harvey's best friend, and from um, he plays Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, yes. And also and Ken, and, and uh, Ken Page plays. Uh, um, Wait, what's her name? Marsha Dimes. Yes. Marsha Dimes. It's so funny. <laughs> and there's that fabulous episode of Designing Women when they go on a cruise and there's this steward on the ship who's Charles Pierce. He's this old queen who just keeps insulting them and, like, you know, lobbing these sassy one-liners. And then Suzanne finds out that her wig has been stolen. And the next thing they know, he's performing in the wig. Exactly. <laughs> and, drag. you know, he's on Laverne and Shirley, too. He did the yes. two-part Murder on the Moose Jaw Express episode. He was the, the, the lady who turned out to be the killer. And then Charles Ludlum was later. that He started in the 70s with the Ridiculous Theater Company. What yeah. was his Theatrical. Im- I think it was Ridiculous Theatrical Company, I think was the name of it. But, yeah, no, he what was, was his The his one impact? I saw was... was uh, the mystery of Irma Vep, which which has one of the greatest still plays. It's brilliant, and there and there's a, there is a reveal in it when they walk into a tomb and find out what it is. That is one of the funniest jokes I've ever seen on the stage. It, I died when they get to, and you you can't give it away because it's too good. Best of us, fan favorite. Gotta love Frank. Gotta love Frank. To Gotta love drag. Shout out to Frank. Um, this next episode happened on October 6th, 2018. And this is when I had my, my own ass doctor on the show, oh, Dr. Yes. Evan Goldstein. Mm, that was a very informative episode. It was. It was episode 66, and we asked him about uh, how to be a better bottom, how to be a better top. Um, he talked about the biggest things people can and should stick up their ass and how Botox can help you be a better bottom. And Ryan, during this segment, asks the immortal question, what happened to my hole? What? <laughs> what? What happened to my hole? I what would, happened to my hole? I'll tell you uh, during the break. Okay. But, uh, but take a listen. to. The, and by the way, this was right after I had anal ward surgery uh, that Dr. Goldstein performed. So here's Dr. Evan Goldstein from uh, October of 2018. The first time I've seen you where you haven't needed to poke around in my hole. I, I guess I still could. No, still we early. could do an on-air examination. <laughs> All right. Like Katie Couric when she had her colon <laughs> exp- inspected. Um, my first question is, how would you describe my hole to the listeners? I think after I operated on it, I think it's perfect. Yes, I did have anal warts mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and hemorrhoids together. If that doesn't turn on the listeners, I don't know what will. <laughs> Um, but but it looks good now, right? I think it looks awesome. What but I haven't seen it in a little bit. You've seen it in a couple a couple weeks ago. We did oh, yeah. a, my follow up. You but you've been busy in the last couple weeks. Put your face right into that <laughs> microphone. I don't want to. I don't want to miss anything. You don't know how busy I've been. <laughs> how dare you? What made you want to focus on this specialty? Um, I just saw that there was a need. Um, I felt like where where are people from our community going for non judgmental kind of non biased care? You know, and I always say that, uh, you know, I'm not into fisting, but if you're into fisting, that's awesome. How do we support that? How do we kind of risk assess it? And how do we make sure that uh, people are living their sexual lives exactly how they want? 
Awesome. What is, uh, I'm going to ask you for tips yeah, for being totally. a better top and a better bottom and a better verse, but I kind of want to get an idea. What's the biggest dick that a person can or should have up his ass? Because, I, you know, I, I have friends that have toys that are just ridiculously large, and I always think you're going to damage yourself. I think the reality is is that yeah, ha- there's a lot. It's multifactorial. People's pelvises, the size of what you know, the capacity can actually take. I think the issue that we every ass is different. Every hole is different. Every hole is that's special. the beauty of my business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but with it, the problem is is that people think that you can go from nothing to that big fucking thing and just take it. And I used to just, think that. And that just doesn't happen. I mean, that's why I have a business, right? You know, mm-hmm. people get injured that way. So I think if someone wants to get that big, it's a gradual process. Some people can't even get there, and they need me to help them, either to kind of dilate surgically so I can kind of get them more relaxed, or the use of Botox, which allows for kind of that full relaxation. A lot of people also- Botox helps you take bigger dick yeah and so like for instance i see a lot of clients that come to me who are really seasoned bottoms and they're dating someone that's new and their cock is fucking huge wow and with that being said i said the word hung like a donkey (laughs) so and they can't get there and and it and it obviously crimps the relationship right i mean and so when people come to me we talk about certain techniques that they can do to get there on their own and sometimes it doesn't work, and then they need me to kind of do that. Um, and so the people that you see with those huge, huge cocks um, or toys, it just takes time. It takes practice. And then on the other side, it's it can be detrimental, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so I think that understanding what we can do if you want to take that, how do we train it as a muscle that it can go back to what it's supposed to so that you can do this for long times? But even without the training, are there some men who are just physiologically better at taking dick than others? Because it seems to me that there is. Yes. I think, and again, I think it's a lot of the, the people that I see are much more seasoned, a little bit older, um, a little bit more muscular. Oh. Um, yeah, kind of like you, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> All except the muscular part. I'm definitely seasoned and older. But but um but so but <clears throat> even as it, let's say there's two 25 year old guys who are relatively new to well that's too old let's say two 18 year old <laughs> men don't come for 25 year olds okay I could take dick real well any size any time any place thank you very much Ooh, there you go. <laughs> oh no, excuse right. us I offended who's JB. that guy <laughs> JB's our associate producer hi <laughs> um two 18 year old guys you know barely had any anal sex can one of them just naturally be better at it. Yes, but I think a lot of that, again, is multifactorial. But a lot of people are just able to relax appropriately um, and or train themselves in a way to do that. When you see the seasoned bottoms, a lot of them are starting very early. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the 16-year-old cock is not huge, right? And so they're kind of gradually dilating themselves. Well, (laughs) here's the thing. (laughs) When I was 14, that's when I lost my virginity, my boyfriend was 16, and he was eight and a half inches thick wow i think well no like he was eight and a half inches and thick oh and thick not eight and right. a half. <laughs> i took his dick with no lube and it was in my memory very easy much easier than oh. it would be today for me so what happened to my hole 
Oh my god, I don't know. I think we, I think that's more like a forty-minute visit yeah. in my office. <laughs> Why honestly. can't I take dick like that anymore? <laughs> you can't take dick. I think again, I it's like you see the kids on the street. You. You, uh, you see the kids on the street that get run over by a car, and all of a sudden they bounce right back. Yeah, that was you at sixteen. I <laughs> Maybe you just wanted it so much because some of it's got to be psychological, yeah, right? I know a lot that when I'm is. super turned on, I'm a much better bottom than when I'm kind of like. Mm. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about tips for being. Uh, first, a better bottom, and then for being a better top. And when I say better, I mean uh, pleasing yourself and your partner. Sure. I mean, I think one of the first things is practice. You know, it's a muscle, right? So mm -hmm. it's like anything. If you're not going to use it, you lose it, I tell people. So the bottoms that bottom frequently every week, right. a couple times a week, um, are really able to continue on that process. The people that are like these verse top guys that say they're verse but they're never really bottoming, um, they get a lot of injury just because they're not kind of constantly using it. So if you're going through times where you're not having anal, you need to dilate. So just put some you know, anal butt plugs near the shower, right before you shower, just a couple of minutes of kind of anal play to kind of allow you. And a lot of that is that mental capacity where you're kind of learning and training. There are people that you top where they're able to completely open their hole yeah. and accept you from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people can actually do that. Um, can you do that, Ed? No. <laughs> I can't do it. Definitely not. No. I always say like, slow, 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 <laughs> like whenever we start and then you know, as I said, if it's really, if I'm into it, then I'm like, all right, go for it. Right. right. I need I, 90 seconds at least. 90 seconds of slow and like, and then I am. But some, some tips to do that is like, if you can, pre-dilate. So like the guy's coming over, you know you're going to be the bottom in that position. Right. You know, using some butt plugs, using, using like uh, lube shooters are awesome because they kind of lubricate the entire canal. Ooh. They're like basically like a syringe that you shoot up your ass. Wow. And, and I endorse those because the problem is, is that people are just so inclined to use spit or like the guy just puts a little bit on his cock and then tries to stick it in and it's like, dude, chill, chill the fuck out. But some you people know? think spit is actually the best lube. Right. You're here to say no. No, no, it's not. Yeah, it's I, not at all. Um, there's some really good lubes. I out mean, there that was the original lube for yeah. many of us. Yes, absolutely. 100%. But, but I think, you know, trying to analyze your hole specifically and figuring out how do you train it just like you go to the gym and train any other muscle. There are days that you want to kind of contract that muscle. And then there are days that you want to kind of relax that. And the people that are doing that frequently or are attuned to their body can actually accept what they want when they want and really allow it to be a long-lasting situation it sounds to me like there's definitely a physical and a psychological component to it totally a hundred percent and the mental capacity is a lot what i deal with you know a lot of it is trying to kind of prove to people that you know when you're in the operating room and i can kind of see how open can you actually go that there are people that can go completely open but the second that they're awake mentally they're completely tight and spastic in that area, right? right? And so it's kind of- I think of, I'm tight and spastic. I think you may. I, I don't know you that well, but I think you're <laughs> definitely spastic. What are some things that a top can do to, to make this experience more pleasant for his partner? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the same is communication. We talk a lot about that. And obviously, you don't know in the beginning stages of uh, you know a hookup or whatnot. But I think, one, the best tops are bottoms because they can kind of understand all right, the initial entry and what's the right way to do it. I think a better tip on the bottom side is the initial should be the control of the bottom. 
So really making sure that like you're in a position so that if the top doesn't actually know what they're doing, that you're in control enough so that you could prevent injury. You mean like sitting on it? Yeah. I think the pre-dilation, the pre-lubrication, and then you saying, all right, just lay there. Let me kind of get in and kind of you being able to maneuver the cock to get it where you want to. And then once you're in that rhythm and it's kind of opened up and ready to go, then you can kind of go that route. But as a good top, it's that initial entry, right? When you're like, dude, 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 slow the fuck down. You know, it's right. like, like you shouldn't necessarily, if the top knows what he's doing, it should be that kind of understanding that there's three sets of muscles that are there. You have to relax every one of those. Each one relaxes at a different time. And so that entry of like, when you say slow, 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 it's trying to get each muscle to kind of slowly relax. And if you're a good top, go in a little bit, hold it there, kind of, don't move, let it kind of relax a little bit, pop back out, re-lubricate, do it again, and kind of getting into the cycle of, you know, that technique. Best of ass. Fan favorite. Oh, now I understand what happened to my hole. It's about, about how. <laughs> you still don't know. All right, I'll tell you after. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, now we're up to number four. And this is when we had on, we had two guest segments. We had Harpy Daniels, the U.S. Yes. Navy drag queen, who I'm still very close with on social media and who, whom I will have sex with someday hmm. uh, because I'm really into Harpy. But um, we also had on director Matt Turnauer. And in the past, when we've included this episode in Best Ofs, we never talk about Matt Turnauer, and I feel like he deserves some love. So this is the segment with him. He had just directed a great documentary based on the memoir of Scotty Bowers. It was called Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Um, Scotty Bowers was this notorious pimp, for lack of better word, who used to set up celebrities with hookers and almost, almost always same-sex hookers. And he was a legend uh, that, that everyone in show business knew about, but the general public obviously didn't know until he came forward and wrote this memoir uh, on which the documentary is based um, just so you guys know, there's a terrible echo at the beginning of this interview. Whenever I speak, it goes away after the first couple minutes, so don't worry. Um, but 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 the book and the documentary make shocking claims about some of Hollywood's biggest names. You'll never listen to Cole Porter songs the same way again. And also, Matt Turnauer has a very deep, sexy voice. I remember his voice being deep and sexy. It's very titillating. Yeah. So enjoy this interview with Matt Turnauer from... Uh, September 2018. I'm going to touch myself. I met Scotty Bowers through Gore Vidal, who is the great author and essayist. And um, we were instantly friends, really. I'd heard about him for years through um, kind of like legendary Hollywood people who I was interviewing for um, Vanity Fair magazine. Merv Griffin, for instance, was the first person to tell me about him, but not by name. He told me that there was a uh, gas station on Hollywood Boulevard and that the cars would be lined up around the block. And uh, this gas station clearly was not just selling gas. And uh, I just made a note to myself that this would be something really interesting to pursue. And then uh, one day I'm with Vidal and he says to me, I want to find my pimp. And <laughs> I said, well, who is that? And he said, his name is Scotty and he had a gas station. So I put it all together at that moment, and uh, he did indeed, uh, Gore did indeed uh, reunite with Scotty Bowers, and uh, he had written a memoir at that time 
which Vidal helped him then get published. And uh, I read the manuscript and said, well, this is a great possibility for a movie. And Scotty and I kind of started on this adventure right then. Gore Vidal described him as a pimp, but that's not quite accurate. How would you describe Scotty's occupation? Uh, Scotty is a, you know, people use euphemisms, a matchmaker um, is one that's frequently used. Um, pimp, I think, uh, has, first of all, negative connotations, and Scotty is the least sinister person I've ever met. Uh, I think that he is not a pimp in the sense that he doesn't take a cut of uh, people's fees, which is the traditional pimp business model. Uh, he says he never took a dime from anyone, which makes people insane when he says that because they, they don't believe it. But uh, I've had that confirmed by many people who worked with him back in the day. Um, they all say, no, you never took a dime of my money. And then they'd say, well, how did you support yourself? And then he says, well, I was tricking myself and I was busy all the time doing other things. And he, indeed he was. He was tree trimming. He was like fixing the plumbing. He was laying concrete sidewalks. He was a, he was a worker. And then later on, um, he became a bartender after he um, stopped working at the legendary gas station in about the mid-50s. So that's how I would describe him. The book, Full Service, the memoir that you mentioned, and the fil your film, make some really shocking claims about Hollywood royalty. And there's so many that we could talk about, and I know you probably don't want to spill um, – you know, spill the beans before people have seen the film. But can you talk a little bit about Scotty's relationship with Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy? Yeah, well, um, you know, not only was Scotty running this gas station in Hollywood, uh, which was a drive-through brothel, basically. She invents the concept of the drive-through brothel uh, in 1945, right after the war. But just a little more backstory: he was a Marine who had been in the Pacific. He was from a farm in Illinois. Typical all-American story of that generation. And then he comes and um, opens this uh, drive through brothel at the Richfield Station on Hollywood and Venice. But it not only was it kind of like a place of uh, uh, kind of freewheeling sex and sexuality in that period, uh, it was also the biggest names in Hollywood were um, hanging out there, basically. Uh, so it was people like um, Cary Grant, Randolph Scott, and, yes, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, who uh, were major clients of Scotty Bowers. And he met them through George Cukor, who um, was the greatest, director. the greatest of the, uh, well, they called them w the women's pictures, yes. uh, which is to really not fair to Cukor. He was you know, top-ranking director in Hollywood of that day. His specialty was what was known as the woman's picture. I, most famously, maybe, is uh, a, a movie called The Women, uh, which was an adaptation of Claire Booth Luce play. Mm -hmm. uh, but through Cukor, who was a major uh, kind of uh, patron of the gas station, not just for gas, he meets uh, Hepburn and Tracy, who were very close to Cukor, and in fact lived uh, from time to time in the guest houses on Cukor's property. So Scotty's frequently over at Cukor's house, not just doing tricks, not just kind of hanging out at the legendary Sunday pool parties, all-male pool parties, but uh, 
Heffern and Tracer there, and he says that uh, Heffern asked Cukor to um, tell Scotty that she'd like to meet women through him, which was not a problem, and it happened. And then uh, Tracy, who lived in uh, a guest house on the property uh, and had a drinking problem, would frequently uh, spend time with Scotty, and then they would, uh, quote-unquote, fall into bed together. Uh, this is sort of shocking to the Hollywood biography establishment because uh, it's not the standard narrative. Uh, right, we'd always heard about this legendary romance between Spencer and Tracy, and your film makes the point that, that it's, it was fabricated. Yeah, I would call it, in a way, a counter-narrative. Uh, which Scotty provides. And it's not that he's someone who heard this from someone. He was the person who was kind of uh, literally in bed with the people. Uh, and that's a big difference. Uh, there are corroborators to the Tracy story, and they were the two male secretaries and close friends of Cukor and also Scotty uh, Bowers. And uh, Tucker Fleming uh, was the was the principal person. Uh, there were two guys. They were nicknamed uh, Chuck and Tuck. I think it was Charles. I'm actually blanking on Charles's last name right now. And Tucker Fleming was the other one. And from the film, it sounded to me like Rock Hudson kind of started out as a hustler and then became an actor through his hustling connections. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. Yeah, so Scotty tells the story of the time when uh, Hudson uh, was in his, I believe, early 20s and was uh, working as a truck driver not yet an actor much less a movie star and uh, Scotty knew him he was the, the very you know very much living as a gay man with a boyfriend uh, and uh, they would come into the gas station and Scotty says that he introduced him to Cary Grant and there was a, a trick an assignation for money twenty dollars which was the going rate. And uh, I thought that was really significant because Cary Grant's the number one star of his generation, Rock Hudson's the number one male star of his generation. So they meet through Scotty and they meet in this uh, unexpected way that's certainly not what the Hollywood publicity system at that time uh, would ever want you to know. It's really amazing. And to, I think when I saw the screening a few weeks ago uh, at, at which you and Scotty were in attendance, I think the biggest gasp from the audience was when it was revealed that Cole Porter, tell me if I get this right, Cole Porter would ask 15 guys to come over and he wanted to suck them each off one after the other. Well, that's the standard Scotty narrative. I mean, if you've read the book, um, that's in that book and he tells that story. Uh, I think, you know, um, this was what Cole Porter liked to do, um, and people have trouble believing that for some reason. I, for me, that doesn't really stretch credulity because Cole Porter was um, known to be – there are whole biographies of Cole Porter that detail his voracious sexual appetite. He was married to a woman, uh, was very much known to be a marriage of convenience, and um, if, you know, he liked Marines – says Scotty. Who and doesn't? Scotty, Scotty had a lot of Marines uh, available. Uh, and 
this is an interesting kind of like flashpoint for people that challenge the veracity of Scotty Bowers. They say, well, Cole Porter was such an erudite, sophisticated, elegant man. Why would he want a Marine who worked at a, a, a garage around? This is frequently said. I, I just, that for me just shows how blind people are to reality. For me, if you're Cole Porter, you don't want to hang out with Moss Hart, Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman and Robert Benchley, all these witty people who are going to tire you out every minute and have like shimmering cocktail party conversation. No, you want a handsome Marine who's going to bring more handsome Marines over while your wife's out of town, and you probably want to have a good time doing whatever you want to do. And the handsome Marine will also trim the trees, fix the broken light in the closet, and you know go shopping for you. Uh, mm, that sounds good to me. Best of us. Fan favorite. Okay. Oh, yeah. Moving up the ladder of the uh, top 10 fan favorites, this was our interview with bisexual porn star Eddie Danger. Oh, yes. Not just a porn star. He's also a go-go boy, a dancer, a poet, an entrepreneur. Eddie does it all. Uh, literally. Mm-hmm. And also, this is the only episode that has a letter attached to it. This is episode 99A. Hmm. What? what was that? I had to do that in order to correct... I'm not, you, we're not supposed to give numbers to the best ofs, and uh-huh. there was one best of that I gave a number to. Oh, so boy. we were off count by one, and in order to fix oh, it, dear. I had to make this 99A. But that's really just very esoteric, unimportant information. Um, this was from June 22nd, 2019. Eddie was interesting. He, he spoke uh, to us about some stripping accidents that he's experienced, some of which were required surgery to fix. Um, and because he's kind of an unlikely porn star... Um, we asked him how he got into this line of work. It was interesting. Take a listen. I just read a long list of professions in which you have worked. Which one of them do you currently identify with most? If you were to meet someone new and they said, hey, Eddie, what do you do? What's your answer to that? Uh, It's kind of hard to say. I really like um, doing appearances, but I don't like dancing anymore because um, I've had too many horrific stripping accidents. So this one is... um, uh, I would say party animal, <laughs> um, but I, uh, I'm kind of getting uh, grumpy and grouchy, so maybe the writer portion, maybe an investigate. Um, who was the one that wrote about the apes? Um, what's oh. her name? Um, uh, Margaret uh, Mead or um, uh, uh, Diane Fossey. One, one uh, okay, well, uh, there's somebody else I'm looking for right now, but, um, but huh. I am an investigative reporter, so let's just say that, investigative reporter. So I'm here uh, on the scene of all these porn shoots and all these uh, strip club events so I can report back to everybody how fucking ridiculous everything is, you know? And I think that's where I am right now. Well, um, and I like to have fun. What are some of the uh, dancing, the go-go dancing accidents or incidents that you're talking about? Like, what what horrific things would happen? Ooh, okay. Um, so, uh, currently, I'm recovering from a, uh, a surgery on my knee, um, but this was to remove scar tissue from a much larger injury that I went through um, about two years ago. It was an ACL uh, shatter. I was doing a split off a ladder and um, uh, on a, for a show, and, uh, and I landed, and the, the, somebody had thrown a drink or something was wet. Maybe it was the oil that these fuckers put all over, all over, all over their bodies, and my, my um, heel slipped out from under me. I do a split where, you know, your legs are, like, completely open. It's like, uh, I don't know what it's called in the gymnastics world, but it's not the one where it's forward. It's side to side. Mm-hmm. So my heel kind of snapped and it shattered my ACL um so that was uh that was uh, one of them 
and I had to get reconstruction surgery on that. But then the scar, some sort of scar tissue built up in, in front of that, so I couldn't dance like I used to, and I couldn't run. So the newest um, surgery was to eliminate all that scar tissue, so hopefully I can run again. But it's kind of enough to be like, fuck this shit. Like, nobody's handy enough to dance anymore if I have to, like, hurt myself this bad. I've concussed and bled all over a bunch of girls at, like, a Magic Mike show. I've torn my hamstrings um, several times. Um, I've, done, I've, I've gone through a lot in this fucking uh, business. You but know? Couldn't, you, couldn't um, you still dance and just not do any acrobatic tricks? I wouldn't want to. I mean, what I'm doing right now is it's just boring. Like, see, if you go to West Hollywood and you go to, say, say Mickey, you see those guys up there. They're making some money, but they're not doing anything. I'm, um, uh, I like to feel what I'm doing, you know. So if I'm a drummer, if uh, I am, but if, when I'm playing drums, if I'm not tired by the end of it, or if I don't feel like exhausted while I'm drumming, I don't feel like I'm doing it, and I'm not putting any passion to it. So I don't want to be there. If I feel like this is the front of the mill, I don't want to do it. So, like, when a gig gets boring, um, I try to zhuzh it up. Like, I used to do um, a lot of aerial acrobatics um, on a chain when I was working naked. As one does. Secrets in DC. Yeah, as one does. But, um, but, oh, and I fell off of the chain one time and it hurt my back pretty bad. <laughs> but oh either way, um, but I would do acrobatics on, like, the poles or whatever and, and a bunch of fun stuff. But it's just because I can't just be there, you know? Let's get I don't some... Think Sorry, I was just going to say Sorry. let's let's get some um, some bio, biographical information on you. You you currently live okay. in DC, yes? Yes. You grew up in Cleveland. You were an honor so student. Say again? Yeah. So to speak. I mean, I I moved out to uh, Yorktown, Virginia uh, when I was like 10, so Oh. You know. And yeah. you, you were an honor student at Virginia Wesleyan College. Uh, to Virginia Wesleyan University now. <laughs> oh, wow! And I changed that on my resume so I can get a better job. <laughs> as well, you should. Uh, and you've yeah. had, and and as we said earlier, you're a published poet. So these are not necessarily things we would expect from someone who goes into go-go dancing and porn. How did that journey into sort of the adult entertainment business evolve? Okay, um, uh, I have recently come into an understanding in my life where. But everything changed um, when I was around 11 years old, and I started to, like, discover, um, you know, the adult entertainment industry. And it, as, a, uh, as like, a, like, a thing that exists, like, so to speak, I went to a gas station on my birthday. Um, I, there was somebody I used to make out with in this neighborhood behind my house, and the gas station was right next to it. So a, I went a, there to man, do that. A boy or girl? Girl. And so I went there, and so I, I was in the gas station, and I was like, um, I was like, you know what, I'm going to, um, I'm going to do some, uh, some, some, uh, sticky fingers, you know, so to speak. So I went and I grabbed a, a porn magazine and it happened to be a small one that could fit into my little, my little pants, you know? <laughs> so I did that and I went home and I realized this isn't a normal porn magazine. This is a, like a, like a hustler fantasy. That's what it was called, but it was like penthouse forum, so to speak. So it was like uh, a letters literature, but alongside of that was pornographic material. And uh, the men looked great, the women looked great. And I think at that moment I realized uh, I'm attracted to all of this. And also um, my pornography wasn't um, video at the time because I mean this was the early days of like Napster and uh, and LimeWire and all that shit. So um, you could download it. Um, it was, certainly wasn't the days of, like, a Playboy magazine. You know, we had, had gotten past that, but it wasn't readily accessible quite yet. So I had to sit there and read this shit. So I think my entire um, life took a change, and it was just like, 
okay, well, we want to stick on a normative life path, so we're going to be doing literature, academia, um, that sort of garbage. I'm going to I'm going to follow the beaten that path, garbage. but I am kind of interested. Yeah, I'm interested in a different and a more uh, like elevated sense of pornography. Uh, um, uh, in, in other words, it was kind of more. Um, uh, I want to get to the bottom of what human sexuality is all about, and maybe uh, um, add something um, a little more fun to it. So I'm working on a book right now that's been kind of um, following this this journey that I've had for the last 10 or 11 years in this industry. It started off like before RuPaul's Drag Race blew up, when there were like shitty um, uh, shitty gigs for shitty performers who worked as like hookers, you know. And everybody's mean, everybody's bullying, everybody was dealing drugs backstage before everybody was Disney and all this, and um. And that's where it started. I was like, this is subterranean and interesting. This was when I was, like, um, uh, getting into college and starting to be like, what do I want to do with my life? I'm very good at writing. I'm going to start, like, looking into this. And so I started working as a stripper. That turned into, um, like, and this wasn't to make money. It was because I was interested in right. it. And as I was kind of progressing through my life, it, it was more of a, um, uh, well, this is what I do. You know, some people, like, they go to college and they, they, they say, I'm going to become a teacher. And they're a teacher from that day until the day they die. I was like, okay, I had a reflection the other day. What else do I want to do with my life? And I was like, well, I have a day job. It, does, it gets me by. But, like, what have I been doing? For, what was the only thing I know how to do? It's the adult entertainment industry. And it's not a sad thing. Had, it's just, Eddie, um, had, had you been yeah. sexually active from a young age? Uh, yeah, like 13, 14. With both boys and girls? Uh, the guys showed up a little later, um, uh, and I think that's a good thing for me um, because I've seen a lot of um, a lot of kids, uh, especially like since they have eighteen and up clubs, kind of uh, get taken advantage of. And men are very disgusting. Yes, um, there's a lot of predators. Ones. And I, yes, and I'm very glad that I didn't get into the scene until I was old enough to handle myself. You know. Um, and I also kept people at a distance that whole time because I think that I, I'm still kind of afraid of men to, in general, but, um, but that's for a different reason. Um, but you know what's, well, what's that reason? That, like, I was, uh, oh, I, I just like I was being a dancer, um, uh, being in the scene. Like you see the very the worst sides of people. The messages I get on Instagram, uh, Facebook, everything. I've uh, men are just disgusting, and in a way that <laughs> women aren't. And um, it's and, true. But, you know, you know what I'm saying. Also, I have a feminist degree, so um, like my master's in, is in feminism. So the entire um, my entire academic kind of journey um, has been kind of slanted on this like um, like a feminist track. Hmm. So I've never really trusted men. Um, so I mean, it's, it's all right. But I mean, I, it's it's great to have a gay community where like you know not everybody's horrible because we, we're family. But I do know that there's a very dark side of people, and, and that luckily this whole Stripping thing in the uh, like the adult entertainment industry brought that to light before I can witness it firsthand. Like, would, you know, would you say you identify as bisexual? I pan, pan, whatever. I mean, I do it. Like I, I've dated uh, trans women. Um, I've hooked up with trans men, um, uh, men that um, don't necessarily identify with any one gender in particular. Oh, so, so why do I say men? I don't know, but I don't really care to be honest. Um, well, when you I'm let me ask you this: bit. when you are alone and you jerk off. What do you th what are you thinking about primarily? Uh, I don't know. Um, that changes all the time. I don't fetishize a lot of normal things. Um, I like home videos, so usually something that's uh, sent to me, or if I'm going to have an experience soon, if somebody's like sent me a video of us 
doing something. Like I film a lot um, of my hookups because I have a just for fans and um, that's how I make a lot of side money. So I typically just go on that and try to remember things that I've, um, I've enjoyed in the past, but it's kind of weird because I can't watch regular porn. Um, it, it comes off as uh, it's, it's forced. I know when the cum shots are fake. I know when the guy can't keep a boner. I t- typically nobody's attracted to each other on set in general, so I just know these things so it doesn't get me going. Best of ass. Fan favorite. Okay. And for the record, I'd still like to have sex with Eddie Danger, even though he has never expressed the slightest interest in having I it with me. I love a little danger. Danger. And finally, we come to the end. The single most downloaded episode of The Ass of All Time. Episode 90, featuring Davey Wavy. Of course. Original air date, April 6th, 2019. So it was almost, well, just over uh, two years ago. Um, I will say that Rocco Steele is hot on Davey Wavy's tail. Mm. He, Rocco Steele will become the number one most downloaded episode. uh, Well, me too. (laughs) Um, But Davey, who was one of the original YouTube stars... Um, told us basically about the history of how he became a YouTube star. Particularly interesting because in the beginning there was no such thing as a YouTube star. He didn't even he didn't plan to do this. He didn't set out to become famous. He just wanted to make some videos, and it took off. What I love about Davey is that he's very sex positive, mm-hmm. as am I, mm-hmm. as are we all. Yeah, and he's very matter of fact about sex. There's no shame. There's no embarrassment. He just puts it out there, um, and he's uh, he's cute. So take a listen to episode 90, the single most downloaded episode of The Ass of All Time. Davey, earlier in the show, I mentioned (laughs) that you were one of the few men whose ass I would love to eat. Well, thank you. Is that that a a rarity for you? It's rare. It's not my thing. I'm not a rimmer. Uh, Ryan, my co-host here, is is an enormous rimmer. I am. Um, But you appear to have, I I mean, I imagine that your ass is completely hairless and pristine and clean enough to eat dinner off of. Yeah, I was, was going to say, what, what is it about my ass that, that makes it so special in your mind? I just think it's it's probably, like, made of porcelain and just, like, super, <laughs> it, super— It does taste like cupcakes. Yeah, mm, delicious. Cupcakes. And you do you enjoy that, or are you just strictly about the nipples and the toes? No, I, I, I enjoy almost everything. The nipples and the toes, for me, are particularly enjoyable. Um, but I do enjoy I do enjoy the ass eating. It's funny because I was I was having sex last night um, with a friend of mine who's 38, and we were talking about like the things that turn us on. And and I asked him like, are you into your feet? Are you into like what? Do you like it when someone tickles your inner thighs? And he was like, I don't know, I don't know what I'm into. Wow, how like, do you well, not know? Girl, you know, you're 30, you're 38 years old. Like, let's let's figure this out, right? Yeah, <laughs> poor guy. By, by, by the time I was 38, what are you, what I had are you waiting for. Yeah, by the time I was 38, I had published a manual that I would just <laughs> hand guys when I brought them home. Yeah, Davey. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's part of the reason why I created Humorous TV because I think a lot of us are really disconnected from our bodies, and the porn that we watch kind of all follows a certain formula. So it's. Um, it's nice to step out of that and really um, get into your body and, and figure out what turns you on and communicate that to others. And it's very juicy stuff. Absolutely. We're going to talk about him, Rose. But first, <clears throat> I feel like you are one of the original YouTube stars, certainly one of the original queer ones. Uh, I, I, you know, early, early on in YouTube, I, I knew who you were. 
How did it come about? When did you start making videos and, and how did you get started on your, your YouTube career? Yeah, well, I've been making videos for 12 years. So when I started on YouTube, I mean, YouTube was not YouTube as we know it today. Um, and uh, there really weren't a lot of creators. Today, there's you know, zillions. Everyone has, has videos that they're uploading. At the time, there really wasn't a lot of content and there really wasn't a lot of queer content. Um, and I just started creating videos about like the books that I was reading, what was going on in my life. And it was never for an audience other than myself. Uh, you know, it was almost like a diary. And people started watching, and, and I think it was like my seventh or my eighth video was about my masturbating neighbor in Toronto, uh, who was this really cute young guy that I could see from my window that would jerk off every day at four o'clock. And it turns out, like a lot of people apparently Google masturbating neighbors or search <laughs> for that on YouTube. Because, uh, <laughs> like, there's websites for stuff like that, but. Um, anyway, a lot of people found my videos, and it was an audience particularly of, of gay men. Um, and so pretty quickly I realized that there was you know, something of an opportunity, uh, maybe even a responsibility to do something with that audience. And I was working for an LGBT nonprofit at the time. And what I found kind of ironic was that through my YouTube work, I was actually able to reach more queer people um, uh, and, you know, then I was through the traditional nonprofit work. So I scaled back my real job and started making YouTube videos and never looked back. So, so at what age were you able to just walk away from a nine to five job and do this full time? Uh, I think I was 24, 25, maybe when I, when I, uh, really walked away from my, my real job. Uh, Unbelievable. Yeah. It was pretty, it was pretty early on. Yeah. Were yeah. you, were you shirtless yeah. from the beginning? <laughs> yeah I, well it turns out I, I don't really wear clothes um very often so for me it seemed I very disingenuous to yeah. like, <laughs> it seemed disingenuous to like put a shirt on to make a video about my authentic life right obviously i'm not like naive i understand that there's also you know a marketing component of it um but i also think like there's a lot of tits on the internet and ultimately like you're gonna have to have more than tits to keep people watching your videos for 12 years so i think the tips might have like pulled them in but hopefully the message and the content or there is something there that people like other than tips because i think that gets that gets old after a certain point you know yeah i think also i'm just thinking about you starting out when you did you know nowadays if somebody wants to become a youtube star like if they set out to do it um they're certainly not always going to be successful but there are certain um best practices that have been established they they know that the video should be this long and it should have th these hashtags and it should be you know this is the content that people most like you didn't have any of that how did you sort of figure it out as you went along or did where was anyone helping you in the early days no well i mean th that's the reason why i was able to succeed like i'm not good at making videos like that's not that's not what my background is and when i started i was using my little webcam um, and at the time, that was fine. That's what everyone else was doing. Now, to you know, create a, a, a channel for yourself on YouTube, you have to have like a high definition camera. You have to know how to edit. You have to understand storytelling. There wasn't any of that expectation when I started, which was the only reason I was really able to succeed. Today, it's much harder to break through. Um, but I will say, also nowadays, when people create YouTube channels, oftentimes their intention is to become you know YouTube famous and 
I, I think that's kind of a disempowered approach. Like when I started, that wasn't, I wasn't creating content because I wanted people to watch me. I was creating content because I had you know, a message, something that I wanted to say. And I think when I look at the people who I admire, who have big platforms in life, they didn't wake up and say like, okay, I want to be famous. What can I do to, to achieve that end? Um, the fame that they have is kind of a side effect of them doing what they love or doing, living their passion, doing something that they're really good at. And I think with YouTube and Instagram and social media, people kind of like turn that on the side so that the fame is the end result. And then, you know, whatever they create on YouTube is just a means to get there. Um, you know, as a 35 year old man, like that doesn't, I don't, that doesn't really resonate with me. Um, so I think I was lucky that I got in when I did. It was kind of a different, a different world. Yeah, like I said, I think you were one of the pioneers. Go ahead, Ry. I, I feel like we're seeing this um, sort of second wave of social media users because there are the people that were sort of there for the beginning of YouTube and the beginning of Instagram and, and Twitter and whatever. And, and those people, exactly what you were saying, were using those platforms to like express what they're, they're passionate about and whatever. And now there's this new generation that sees that success and that sees that you can post videos onto YouTube and become famous and that is now their objective is to use that platform to become famous rather than to use it as like a platform to share, you know, whatever it is that you want to share. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I always kind of have this approach. It's like, like, what is it in Wizard of Oz? It's like, are you a good witch or a bad witch? <laughs> like, are you, are you using your power, you know, for good and to bring people together to, to share a message or are you using it because, you know, you, you like, you just want people to, to validate you or to, you know, click the like button or whatever it is. There's so much, there's so much, uh, so many layers, just fluff on, on, on YouTube. And, uh, what I find really frustrating is like, oftentimes the, the content that we create is definitely edgy. And we just did a documentary about a porn star named Calvin Banks who, um, talked about his sexual abuse as a child and how that impacted his relationships and porn and his relationship with sex. We created this really beautiful documentary about his experience on one of our shoots, and you know YouTube immediately age restricted it. They took it off the platform for a while. I had to really argue with them to to um, to get the video on my channel so that people could see it. And to me, it's like this is such an important story that needs to be told. And yeah, people are making videos called like the bottled water challenge. You know, like it's <laughs> it's like. Come on, people. Like, like well, what's going on here? One thing I've noticed, Davey, I find like a lot of gay YouTube stars out there, they try to be very family friendly and kind of asexual. You know, it's like, hi, I'm gay, yeah. and, and, but I have no sex life. You're never going to hear about like my penis or my sex or anything. Whereas you, I feel like, decided early on that you were going to be extremely sexual and extremely sex positive. How did you come to that decision to just put your sexuality out there? Well, for me, it's just, it's about authenticity. Like, I don't, I don't want to share recipes, you know, like, I don't want to, like, I want to talk about what's interesting to me, what I'm passionate about. And I'm passionate about cock. Like, I'm passionate about, Amen. about sex. And so that's, that's what I'm going to talk about. And, and more power to other people that, you know, that are passionate about other things that are more family friendly. But I think as long as it comes from a place of authenticity, like, that's all you can ask. Um, but for me, having this very like 
neutered, family-friendly approach, while it's going to allow you to work with a lot of sponsors, like, I'm going to have no soul by the end of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, I just can't. I can't do that. I have to say cock at least at least once in every video. I mean, I get that. Best of ass. Fan favorite. All right, JB, we can turn on the closing music because that is the end of the show. Ryan and JB, please plug yourselves. Well, you can follow me at Ryan Frosting on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow me only at Anarchy 12 on Instagram. And you can follow me at Adam Sank on everything. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I've got a Facebook page. I'm everywhere. Thank you all so much for listening. Tune in to next week to hear a brand new live episode of The Ass featuring legendary gay comedian Jim David making his first appearance ever on The Ass. Subscribe to this podcast at dnrstudios.com. Don't forget to order your ass merch at adamsank.com. Follow me, as I said. Email me at adam at adamsank.com. Have a great week, bitches.